Hi, I'm Jacqueline. And I'm Courtney. And this is Caffeinated Crimes. Welcome back to our second episode. We're here again. We're so happy that you joined us to see what we have to cover today. Hopefully you guys liked Ed Gein. Well, hopefully you liked the episode of Ed Gein. Maybe not Ed Gein himself. Please don't like Ed Gein, just like our (laughs) coverage of Ed Gein. Yes, he was not a good person. Please please don't like him. And if you didn't like it or we got something wrong, please just tell us. We do want your feedback. You know, we don't want to be just telling wrong information, and we will correct it in future episodes if we do something yes. wrong. Yes, absolutely. Please let us know if, if you have additional information or something that maybe we got wrong, especially for that case. It was such a while ago that there's not too many details out there. So if you've found more details elsewhere, please let us know. We would love to hear them. Yes, definitely. Um, so today we have made sure and put all of our lovely animals away. So hopefully there are no additional background noises. You might hear a few doors rattling, but don't worry. They have food, they have water, they have toys. They are fine. They, they just love attention. So maybe you'll get a little, a little background guest appearance, but hopefully not. Um, so as we teased in last week's episode, this week we are covering Lacey Peterson. This is a very interesting case. And I remember being little eight-year-old Courtney sitting on my couch <laughs> in my house watching this and being like, oh, my God. It's like you do when you're eight years old, apparently. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> and just being like, oh, my gosh, he killed his wife and his unborn son. Oh, my gosh. But, guys, just please keep an open mind. There's a lot more information that we didn't know in 2004. Yes. Um, so just when you're listening, don't necessarily jump to any conclusions and just hear everything out because that's super important when listening to these kind of cases. Yes, absolutely. Um, So the sources that we used for this case, there are a lot of them because, again, there's a lot of information that's come out since then. Um, And this this case was covered very heavily in the media, so there's a lot of information out there. Um, So a couple of books that we read in our research for this episode um, are Inside the Mind of Scott Peterson by Keitha Blow, for Lacey, A Mother's Story of Love, Loss, and Justice by Sharon Rocha, which is Lacey's mother. We watched the investigation and discovery, Scott Peterson, an American murder mystery, and also the A&E murder of Lacey Peterson. Um, those are both on Hulu. Yes. And a couple of articles, we read what was found in Scott Peterson's car after Lacey Peterson's body was discovered from ABC News, as well as Scott Peterson trial fast facts from CNN. And actually on scottpetersonappeal.org, you can access all of the court documents from the original trial, as well as his appeal, which is currently in process. Um, So those official documents are out there as well. Where did you just get into? Let's, Let's dive in. Okay, so December 24th, 2002, in Modesto, California, Scott Peterson arrives home and calls his mother-in-law, Sharon Rocha, at 5.17 p.m. to ask if his wife, Lacey, is at her house. Um, So it's Christmas Eve, and they had plans to go over there that evening. So he arrives home, and he's getting ready. So he calls her to make sure that she is already there. Um, So her car is in the driveway, and in the phone call, he says that he found the dog in the backyard with his leash still on. Um, So Sharon tells Scott that no, Lacey is not at her house and asks what happened, what's wrong, um, and he says that Lacey is missing. Um, So that's going to be an important thing that comes up later, the words that he used at this moment. 
So Sharon calls the police and reports Lacey missing as Scott tries to call around to some of her other friends to make sure that she is not with them. And the police come over. They begin a search that will last four months before the body of Lacey and her unborn son, Connor, is found. Um, Lacey was seven and a half months pregnant at the time that she disappeared. So Lacey Peterson is born May 4th, 1975 to Sharon and Dennis Rocha. Her mom describes her as a happy baby um, and said as she got older that she was a child who loved to always be outdoors. Um, Her friends would report this later too, that she was super into gardening and she just really enjoyed being outside. Um, Her parents split up when she was young and her mom began a long-term relationship with the man that Lacey would call her stepfather. So they never actually got married, but they were essentially married. Um, and his name was Ron Gransky. So Lacey had a good relationship with both of her parents as well as her stepfather and was also close to her brother, Brent. Her father also remarried. Oh. I don't know his new wife's name. Um, and they had a few kids together, too. Um, and she was really close with them, too. It seems like a really, like, divorce can be really rough, but it seems like for all people it went pretty smoothly and everyone really got along. Yeah, yeah. So it was a a fairly tight-knit family. You know, everybody got along really well. Um, Lacey had a ton of friends. Everyone described her as very talkative, outgoing, bubbly, especially talkative. Um, Everyone that talks about her says that she was just super happy all the time and very conversational, always had a lot to say, and just super fun to be around. So Lacey graduated from high school in 1993 and moved to San Luis Obispo to attend California Polytechnic University. Um, So at the time that she moved, she was dating her high school boyfriend and they moved in together, but they broke up shortly after that. So before we get into how her and Scott met, we're just going to do a brief background on Scott before we can kind of tell their story together. Um, So Scott Peterson was born October 24th, 1972 to Jackie and Lee Peterson. Um, He had an older half-brother from his mom that his dad had also adopted and raised as his own. And his mom had two children previously that she had given up for adoption. So shortly after Scott was born, he contracts pneumonia and is placed in a plastic oxygen chamber. Um which is kind of interesting knowing what we know now about the importance of attachment with parents shortly after birth, um, that physical closeness that's really important for building that bond with your parents, which in turn is going to affect how you bond with other human beings. Sorry, guys, I wrote my um, master's thesis on (laughs) attachment (laughs) theory, so I'll try not to dive too much into that. Yeah, and I mean, it's super interesting, too, because that is, you know, a very serious thing to develop that soon after birth and be you know, in yeah. the oxygen chamber and very close to, you know, probably dying as a baby. So yes, that's a pretty traumatic event, even if you probably don't remember it. Yes. So just kind of something to maybe keep in mind as we get into what happens later, as far as maybe some of Scott's behaviors, that this is something that could have influenced social emotional development later on. So Scott does a semester at Arizona State University on a partial golf scholarship before he transfers to Cuesta College, and then California Polytechnic State University, which is where, obviously, he is going to meet Lacey. 
Um, so Scott was working at a little restaurant called the Pacific Cafe in the summer of 1994 when a friend introduced him and Lacey. Um, so Lacey left him her phone number and he later called her and they began dating. Scott and Lacey Peterson married on August 9th, 1997, and Lacey graduated college later that year, and Scott would graduate the following year. So they actually opened a restaurant together near the college, uh, I believe in 1998 or 99 is when they opened it, um, but they sold it in, 2000, in the year 2000 to move back to Modesto, California, which was Lacey's hometown, so that she could be closer to her family. Um, so Lacey gets pregnant in 2002, and her due date is February 10th, 2003. And definitely from what we hear, it seems like they were a good couple together. Like, they worked, yeah. you know, as a team. They seemed happy. Um, you know, all that. Like, it didn't really seem like one of those, like, really horrible relationships where everyone is like, no doubt something would happen in this relationship. You know, it took people yeah. by surprise. They really, you know, they seemed like a good couple. And Lacey's family, you know, even afterwards, right after she's reported missing and they're, you know, in the search for her, they were like, no, Scott had nothing to do with this. Like, we we love him. We trust him. Our daughter loved him. Her friends all said the same thing. Again, this is not a relationship that there was suspected abuse or anything going on. For all intents and purposes, it seemed like a, a normal, healthy relationship. As they're beginning the search for Lacey, obviously, they're going to speak to Scott about... Yes where he's been that day, what's happening. Um, we know, obviously, the husbands are always questioned first. The husband always did it. Yes, Just the husband always did it. Innocent until found guilty. <laughs> Guys, if I murdered, my husband did not do it. I'm saying this on public record right now. If I murdered, Kevin did it because he can be with nobody else but me. I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, so Scott is talking to the police and... I'm just going to kind of go through the timeline of what happened that day. And I know it's a little tedious with some of these specific times but I promise they are important later as Courtney is going to get into the trial so just bear with me as we kind of go through what supposedly happened that day yeah we won't bring up anything that won't later yes. be important foreshadowing what, what, yes the if, if there's a gut on the wall on the first page it must go off by the last page yes is that, is that did I get that right yes it is <laughs> Mr. Loop thank you for your English. Shout out to Mr. Loop, <laughs> who will guaranteed never listen to this What podcast. if Mr. Loop listened to this? I would be ecstatic, honestly. Mr. Loop, if you're listening, please reach out to us, caffeinatedcrimespod at gmail. Most of you know us, I'm sure, listeners, but if we do get famous and you don't know who Mr. Loop was, he was a teacher at our high school who was quite literally the greatest teacher to ever exist in the history of teachers. So 100%. He was amazing. Yes. So shout out to Mr. Loop. Um... So Scott reports that him and Lacey, that Lacey woke up around 7 a.m. Um, and because she was pregnant, he said she was having some morning sickness. So she would usually eat a little bit when she first woke up and then eat later on. So he said that she got up around 7 and had some toast. Um, he said he stayed in bed for about another hour and then he got up around 8 and they had some cereal together. So Lacey was hosting her family at their house the next day for Christmas Day. Um, so she said that she needed to make the French toast for brunch. So she had all the ingredients at her house that she was going to need, but she said that she was going to spend the day prepping some of that. Um, some reports say that she was going to walk the dog and mop the floor. Um, this gets a little bit tricky later because sometimes it was said that she said that, sometimes it was said that she didn't. So she may have had plans to do those. 
Um, he said that they watched Martha Stewart together from about 9 to 10 o'clock. When they asked what was on Martha Stewart, Scott reports that it was something about meringue. And again, this is going to come up later. It will come up. Yes. Trust the me. meringue is very important in the story. That lemon meringue is very important. <laughs> Man, that sounds good. Like some lemon meringue. I know. I'm getting hungry. <sighs> is it brunch time? Yet? Okay. Anyway. So Scott says that he left the house around 9.30 um, to go to his office slash warehouse. And Scott worked for a fertilizer company, I believe. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that was it. Okay. Um, and so his phone records show that he checked his voicemail at 10.08 a.m. And with the cell towers at the time, they couldn't really tell exact location like you could now. But they knew that he was within a few miles of his house. So that kind of lines up with about what time he said he left his home. Maybe a little bit later. But, I mean, I know my husband would never be able to tell you exactly what time he left or I left or anything. No, so Kevin couldn't either. I don't know if I could, honestly, unless like I specifically do something. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like I went out to eat the other day and they were like, oh, it's a 20 minute wait. And my mom was like, oh, has it been 20 minutes? I'm like, I don't know. I think <laughs> I sent a text to Kevin around the time we put our name in. Let me check. But besides that, like I can't remember. <laughs> and then you have me who went to a local wing place last night and they said it would be about 20 minutes for our food and I'm like okay it's 8 15 right now and when I get my food at 8 45 I'm texting Courtney this was way more than 20 minutes but <laughs> normal people do not we know can't times. All be that detail oriented <laughs> so Scott and Lacey's neighbor later reports that she found the dog outside um, their dog's name was Mackenzie and that he was outside with his leash on at 10 18 a.m. Again, this time is going to be important later. Yeah, and she says that, you know, she finds the dog. I think she said it wasn't that unusual. You know, dogs get out. It's normal. And so she just kind of put Mackenzie back in the in the gate, yeah. you know, in the backyard, closed the gate, moved on. Yeah. So Scott left his warehouse at 11.18 a.m. Um, and said that he drove for approximately an hour and a half to go fishing at the marina. Um, so this is what he told the police. I think he told Lacey's parents that he was golfing that day. Um, so this part gets a little tricky as well. He told some people he was fishing, and he told some people that he was golfing. Um, but we do know from the cell phone records and um, the boat launch ticket that he bought at 12.54 p.m. at the marina that he was indeed fishing in that area that day. Um, so Scott said that he was out on the water for about an hour and a half before he left, and phone records show that he left Lacey a message on their home voicemail at 2.15 p.m. Um, saying that he was leaving and he hit some traffic, and he wouldn't be able to pick up a fruit basket that he had told her sister that he would be picking up. So he would need her to go pick up the fruit basket for Christmas that he was supposed to pick up for the family. And it is kind of weird. It's like Christmas Eve. You're going to go out fishing. You're going to drive like an hour and a half just on a whim. I mean, it is kind of weird, but I do know a few guys I've dated in the past have been the spaciest people I've ever met. And they don't think, you know, you just don't think about like, oh, yeah, I have plenty of time. Just run down, get on a boat yep. for a little bit, come back. It'll be no time. No big deal. I can still pick up the fruit basket. No, you never have enough time to do what you want to do and also pick up the fruit basket. Yeah, Just it's and general you know, and life sometimes advice. I can be like that too. I can be a little spacey. You know what I mean? <laughs> Where I'm like, I have plenty of time. And then I'm like, no, I don't. 
again, going back to me where I'm like, okay, I need to be somewhere at 10 o'clock. It's going to take me approximately 17 and a half minutes to get there. So I'm going to need to give myself like a 15 minute buffer time and it's going to take me this long to get ready. I might have a problem, guys. I don't think I'm a normal person. <laughs> um, well, it'll definitely help if you're ever accused of murder. <laughs> that's true. I mean, this is why I keep my planners for the previous year showing exactly where I was at what time. So if anyone ever accuses me of a crime, I can say, look, I was here, there. Because who knows where they were at a specific time four months before. Yeah, definitely not me. But what we do know is that on December 24th, 2002, Scott got gas at 3.25 p.m., according to his receipts. Um, he called Lacey again and left her another voicemail at 3.52 p.m. Again, he hit some traffic coming back home, which is California, so that's normal. Predictable. And especially um, it's Christmas Eve, like anywhere. Everyone's traveling to see their family. Everyone's oh, yes. driving back, you know. A lot yeah. of times, like with Kevin and I, like our families live like eight hours apart. So like Christmas Eve night, yeah. like we're traveling eight hours to go to see one of the families. So yeah. it's, so a, it's very a very busy travel day. <laughs> Yes, very normal. Um, so the time between when he got gas and he arrived at the warehouse, so when they looked at the, I think it was MapQuest at the time, shout out if you still know what MapQuest was, um, the, the, the time it should have taken him to get from the gas station to his warehouse would put him arriving at the warehouse about 4.15 p.m. And Scott says that he arrives home about 4.30 or 4.45 p.m., which again all lines up with where he says he was at, at what time. So he gets home and his wife Lacey's car is in the driveway, but she's not there. Um, So he thinks that maybe she went ahead to her mother's house where they were supposed to go at six o'clock for Christmas Eve dinner. So he said he found a mop bucket inside that was still full. And so he went outside to dump out the mop bucket and he finds their dog outside again with the leash on. Um, And we know that the dog was found with the leash on at 1018 that morning and put into the backyard. Um... So Scott says that his clothes are wet from fishing, so he puts his clothes in the washer, he grabs a slice of pizza, and he takes a shower to get ready to go over to his mother-in-law's house. So now when he gets out of the shower, he listens to the voicemail where he hears the recordings that he left her, indicating that she has not heard those recordings yet. And there's also a message that afternoon from Lacey's parents asking them to bring whipped cream over to her house on the way. So now Scott's starting to get a little worried, like, okay, where, is Lacey there? Did she go somewhere else? Kind of what's going on? Um, So then that's when he calls Lacey's mom at 5.17 p.m. And as we know, she is not at her house, and they begin the search for Lacey. And it was really, really interesting, too, because um, in Sharon's book, she talks about, you know, when they called the police, the police came immediately and started searching. They were looking all around, like, the park that she might have walked Mackenzie to and all that. Um, and one thing that me and Jacqueline just both found interesting was that in so many cases we hear, they're like, we called the police and said they were missing, and they said we had to wait 24 hours. They said we had to wait yeah. a long time. So it's super interesting that they immediately started searching for her and didn't have them have this, like, wait period, especially on Christmas Eve. Not Police departments are wonderful. They do amazing things for us. Um, but, you know, on Christmas Eve, they're short-staffed. They're like, we don't, we don't want to go out there and search, you know, just wait. But they did. They started searching immediately, which is very good, which I think should be the case in every case. And not to get too down a rabbit hole, but Lacey was young and white and pretty, which has yeah. a lot to do with why she was searched for immediately. Yes. But um, so the search continues. So, again, 
he reports that she may have been walking the dog. Um, she had a very specific route that she would walk the dog to the park and back. Um, so they searched all over this park. You know, they searched around. They had some um, sniffing dogs that would get her scent and try to find where she may have gone. Um, then a lot of stuff starts happening in the media. So January 24th, um, a young woman named Amber Fry holds a press conference and reveals that she's been having an affair with Scott Peterson. Um, so it was, this information was about to come out as, um, I think a reporter had found a picture of them together at a Christmas party a couple of weeks before Lacey went missing. Yeah, I, um, it was some magazine, I'm not sure the exact magazine, but they basically called the police and they're like, hey, we have this picture and we're publishing it tomorrow. So do with that with what you will. So that's why they were kind of like, all right, we have to get on top of the media. Yep. So Amber comes forward and reveals that she's been having this affair with Scott, but she did not know he was even married um, and that she knows nothing about his wife's disappearance. And that as soon as she saw him on the media talking about his wife missing, she immediately went to the police. So she has been working with the police this whole time, letting them know that she did have a relationship with this man, but she knows nothing about what happened. Um, So April 13th, 2003, Um, The body of Connor Peterson is found washed up on the shore near the marina where Scott says that he was fishing the day of their disappearance. Um, A day later, on April 14th, Lacey's body is found about a mile away. On April 18th, California Attorney General Bill Locker confirms that the bodies found do belong to Connor and Lacey. Um, Lacey's body was severely decomposed, so it was not immediately identifiable as Lacey. Essentially, it was just a torso that was left. Um, so she had no head, no arms, legs. Yeah, none of that. There was very little left of her. Um, so yeah, I think Courtney's going to yeah, take gonna it away take with over. what happens next. Yes, so on this same day, on that April 18th, um, when the bodies are found, they're like, all right, Scott's our number one suspect. We're, we're going to go look for him. So he was in the San Diego area, which is where some of his family lived. So the cops had kind of been following him, and they said he was driving completely erratically. He was going like 80 down the freeway, and then he would just slam on his brakes. Um, Scott did say later that he thought it was the media, and he was just trying to lose the media, and he didn't want to be followed. Um, He was trying to go to the Torrey Pines golf course in La Jolla, California to meet his family and go golfing, and he didn't want like pictures of him golfing in the media. So he was trying to lose them. Um, but it ended up it was the cops, which is worst case scenario. Um, <laughs> Not what you want, Scott. So they pull him over and they're like, Scott, like, why, why is your hair blonde? So he'd gone and got his what? hair, <laughs> got his hair dyed blonde. And yeah. so they searched the car he was driving. So they find some interesting things. There was a rope, a knife, four cell phones, camping supplies, children's books. He had like fourteen to $15,000 in cash. That's a lot Sounds of money reasonable. in cash. Um, I carry that every day. I don't. Don't come rob me. No, I she don't doesn't have, have any money. <laughs> um, <laughs> so he had his brother's ID. He had a fishing pole, hiking boots, and a shovel. He also had a bunch of Viagra. <laughs> so maybe he has Sounds like issues. he's ready for quite the weekend And there. he did have a picture of him and Lacey as well. And so a lot of speculation in the media was this was him trying to get down to the border and he was trying because San Diego is very, very close to the Mexican border. So yeah. they truly believed he was trying to like run away, escape, 
get away from this. Um, and even if he, like, wasn't, this is a really weird combo. Like, his family was mm-hmm. like, oh, no, like, we owed him $15,000, so we'd gotten it out of the ATM and given it to him. And I'm like, what? Like, who does that? Yeah, I don't, I've never really heard of paying somebody back by going to the ATM and getting $15,000 in cash. And also, why do you have four cell phones and your brother's ID? Yeah, it's very, it's just, very fishy. It's and questionable, They said for it looked sure. like he was maybe living in his car and stuff like that. It mm-hmm. was a very, very weird combo. Um, so on April 21st, Scott Peterson is officially charged with two counts of felony murder with premeditation and special circumstance. So the special circumstance um, was important for the prosecution because it meant they could seek the death penalty in California. And it was two counts because any fetus who is after eight weeks is an equal victim. So that's why. Eight weeks? Yeah. Wow. Um, So Peterson pleads not guilty. Um, And so the media have been having a frenzy with this case for the month, like the few months leading up. Um, mm-hmm. And one guy who was always on there kind of defending Scott was Mark Garagos. Um, so the family reaches out and they're like, hey, come be his lawyer. And he's like, okay, I'll do that. Um, and that was on May 2nd. And then June 12th, um, a gag order is placed because the media is having such a frenzy. The judge is like, yeah. I want to make sure Scott has a fair trial. So I don't want any of this going on. You know, families cannot go talk to the media. Nobody can talk mm-hmm. to the media. Everybody keep it hush hush because in this case you have a pretty young white seven and a half months pregnant woman who washes up everyone has already convicted the husband so even though this trial has not taken place yet the media her family the public everyone already hates this man yeah and it was i mean it was intense in the media um i watched the uh the murder of Lacey peterson on hulu it's a six-part docuseries everyone should go watch it it was amazing Um, It was so good. It was so thorough. Um, And they just constantly were showing clips of just the media, just like Mm -hmm. trashing Scott, trashing like everything. So, um, so they're trying to keep everything hush hush, trying to keep it a fair trial. So to keep it a fair trial, um, they're trying to move it to Redwood City. And that's only about 50 minutes away, which really is not that far away. <laughs> no, so, everyone there has also heard of Scott Peterson. Yeah, and I think they were saying like it was closer to San Francisco. And it was like San Francisco was the main news hub that was talking about this case. So yeah. um, everyone there had already heard of it. Um, there was on the docuseries uh, Pat Harris. He's one of the defense attorneys. So he was saying that like only 50% of the people on the jury questionnaire were able to admit like, they thought Scott was guilty. So half the juror, mm-hmm. possible jurors, they were like, yeah, we think he's guilty. <laughs> um, and and just in case you're not well-versed in American legal proceedings, um, you cannot be on a jury if you already have an opinion about the defendant's guilt. Yes. So. so basically, Pat Harris is like, okay, so then we were like, let's see if we can find any people who maybe think Scott is innocent. And yep. he was like, we could barely find any. So then he was like, mm-hmm. okay. We'll forget about that. We're going to try to find people who could at least give him a fair trial. And he said even that was almost impossible to find. Yeah. Um, and one thing, Kevin said I had to include this because he thought it was very important. <laughs> this is a very high-profile trial. So apparently there are people who will answer the right questions and everything to get on a high-profile trial. Mm-hmm. And they have an agenda. So the defense was told like hey like there's this woman like on the internet and she's talking about how she completely fooled the entire defense she got a call back she's going to be on this jury and she is going to fry scott peterson and this is before the trial even starts and this is a woman who was like about to be picked for the jury 
So clearly it's very hard to get this to be, you know, fair. And again, just a reminder that in America, you are innocent until proven guilty. That's the way our and that, legal yeah, system and that is, is supposed how to work. The jury is supposed to think. You are supposed to be like, you do not come in here thinking he's guilty. You do not come in here thinking mm-hmm. he's innocent. You come in here like yeah. a blank slate. You were just going to hear what is presented to you. Which is why it makes it incredibly difficult to, one, find a place for a fair trial and also to find jurors who will give this defendant a fair trial because the media has covered this case so extensively that anyone with a computer, with a television, now if this case were to happen, anyone with a smartphone, like we consume news so much now that we already have all of this information before any of these legal proceedings begin. So this makes it very difficult for anyone in a high profile case like this to actually get a fair trial. Yeah. And I mean, as a juror, you cannot use emotion to convict someone. You're supposed to use only logic, Mm -hmm. only the facts. Um, But on May 27, 2004, they finally picked their jury. They had six men and six women and six alternates. This is something I found very interesting. They were not sequestered. So after the trial, every day, they got to go home. And they were told, please do not look at the media, do not look at newspapers. But there was no one holding them accountable for that. And even it was talking about, like, there were billboards up being, like, local radio stations being, like, Scott Peterson murdered his wife, guilty or not guilty, text to vote, and stuff like that. So they're seeing this on the way home is just all this stuff um because they weren't sequestered because that's a lot of money which is what they did like with the oj simpson trial where you're like up in a hotel can't have any which you know which is normal for a high profile murder case that that's what you typically do yeah so with this one yeah they weren't sequestered they got to go home they were like please by good faith don't do like you know don't look anything up but this will come into play later a bit with the trial i'm trying to keep in chronological order A few big things happened with the jury. Um, The judge also, he was a no-nonsense judge. He didn't want any flashy stuff in his courtroom, and he was like, no cameras are allowed in this courtroom. Media was allowed, but they could not film or anything like that. So on June 1st, the trial officially begins. So this case was a very circumstantial case. There was no really direct evidence. Um, So the prosecution opens up their opening statements and they're like listen like scott is not a good person he doesn't want to be a father he doesn't want to be tied down so instead of divorcing her you know what he does he takes her body he kills her dumps her in the bay says goodbye that's what he did and in um rick destosto that's the district attorney during his opening statements he's like and scott lied about the morning that Lacey disappeared. He said he's watching Martha Stewart and there's some lemon meringue, but there's no lemon meringue mentioned on that episode. Oh, oh yeah. Is there not? Oh, yeah. Here we go. So the next day, Mark Aragos, um gets to open up with his opening statements. And he's like, you know what, guys? You're right. Scott is not a good guy. He's a scoundrel. <laughs> no one's arguing that he's a good guy. <laughs> he's a scoundrel. He had an affair, cheated on his like eight-month pregnant wife. But guys, he didn't kill her. And so because Rick Destosto, you know, opened up and said, there's no lemon meringue, Garagos is like, oh, really? He plays the episode from that day of Martha Stewart and shows them talking about lemon meringue. That is a huge... We told you the meringue would be important. Huge blow to the prosecution. Yeah. I don't know why 
the prosecution ever said this to begin with. That is horrible. You were butchering your case from day one. (laughs) And so in her book, Lacey's mom mentioned that he couldn't have used that actually because this did not occur until I believe 43 minutes into the episode. And Scott reports that he left the house at 9.30 a.m. Okay, that's a very short period of time to say that you can't use this as an absolute that you were in the house because if you say you left at 9.30 but you really left at 9.45, that's a, a close like enough time frame. Minutes. Yeah, it's... That's believable. So the lemon meringue that Scott says was in the episode between 9 and 10 a.m. on the day that his wife disappeared was indeed on the Martha Stewart episode. Yeah, and so then... Garagos is also like, look, guys, they collected hundreds of items from the house, from his warehouse, and there is absolutely no forensic evidence of a murder anywhere. There's no full evidence. Um, So basically throughout the trial, they kind of go back and forth. You know, the prosecution, like they're presenting something. The defense comes in. You know, it was kind of like they were just edging each other up. You know, like each Mm -hmm. time the prosecution thought they had a win, the defense came. Um... And so the prosecution gets another huge blow because one of their witnesses ended up turning into a defense witness. So there was... Whoops. Oopsie. <laughs> so there was a computer analyst and he analyzed the Peterson family home computer. Um, and so basically the prosecution, um, their timeline is the night of the 23rd is when Scott kills Lacey. So then the morning of the 24th, he drives to the bay, drops her off. So... Then this computer analyst is on the stand and was like, yeah, on the morning of the 24th at like 8.40 a.m., someone is looking at sunflower umbrellas and women's clothing. Um, Everyone says Lacey loved sunflowers. Everyone, you know. So they're like, it it seems kind of obvious that it might be Lacey looking this up. So the defense is like, your whole timeline is thrown off. Um, Also, the prosecution does say Scott could have, knowing she loved these items, looked them up to throw off the timeline. I mean, I don't think this is damning evidence either way. I think it's very circumstantial. So, you know, it did throw a blow to the prosecution, though, because now they're like, well, we told you that Scott killed her the 23rd, and now that might not have happened. So it may have been the 24th. We don't really know for sure. Basically, at this point, the prosecution's looking really sloppy. They're not doing well. Um, There's no physical evidence of a crime in the Peterson home. Um, At the warehouse, they did find a concrete anchor. Um, And Scott did say, I did make one of those. I had it with me on the boat that day. Um, And the prosecution says you can see where four more were made in the warehouse, like, on the floor basically there's not it's not hard evidence at all um like how do you know that four more were made yeah that's the thing they said there was some cement powder missing like from the bag he had and he was like yeah and he was like well there was like a hole in my driveway and i just kind of put it in there and like filled it up um and nancy grace like harshly criticized him for this on air like i mean tore him down said there is no way he made these anchors well, one of the news guys went with Nancy Grace, Nancy Grace to the home, and he has a picture, and it's showed on the docuseries, of literally where you see the cement powder near the driveway, where it had been sprinkled. Um, of course, Nancy Grace never went back and said that on her air, that it was there. Of course but not. Basically, again, it's not hard evidence. Maybe he did make four more anchors, but there's no hard evidence. 
And if I could just add, as far as the concrete anchor, um, that is very normal for a fishing boat of the size that Scott had um, to just make a little, so basically you would take like a, a bucket and you would fill it with concrete and you would put like some, like a, a um, something to make a handle. Yeah, like a thick piece of metal that you would put in there and then obviously the concrete would form and then you have something that you can toss off of your small fishing boat to anchor you to your spot. So that is a normal thing to do with a fishing boat. I just kind of want to throw that out there that having an anchor alone is not damning evidence. Yeah. So um, also the prosecution's like, all right, since we're on the topic of the boat, Lacey never knew about this boat. She had zero knowledge of it. And they did find one piece of physical evidence they did find was a hair in a set of pliers that was in the warehouse. Um, And they said that is Lacey's hair. And they were like, Lacey never knew about this boat. She never really came to the warehouse. So clearly that hair must have gotten there when he was dumping her body. But again, the defense steps it up, did their jobs, and... Mm -hmm one of the detectives had redacted a statement from his investigation because a Hmm. woman who owns a warehouse near where Scott's was said, I saw her on the 23rd. I let her use the bathroom. So if Lacey was there at the warehouse, she would have seen the boat. She would have known it existed. And all friends and family of Scott and Lacey say they had no idea this boat existed or that he had the boat. Yes, Jacqueline, I'll get to you one second. Um, <laughs> she's raising her little hand. I'm like, raising my hand because I have a point to make, but I don't want to interrupt Courtney. Oh, you're so civil. <laughs> um, but, yeah, so they're all saying she has no idea about this boat. But if she was at the warehouse, she would have seen the boat. And maybe she was just embarrassed and didn't want to say anything. Jacqueline. So that's kind of the point that I wanted to make, though, is that obviously Lacey is not alive at this point to tell us whether or not she knew about the boat. I believe he bought the boat on December 6th or 9th. I believe somewhere it around, around that time. Yeah, it, it, she, he recently bought the boat. Um, so the fact that none of her family knows about the boat, well, it's only been a couple of weeks. And also they had reported that they were having some financial issues and they have a baby on the way. So maybe Lacey was embarrassed that her husband just dropped a bunch of money on a boat and doesn't want to tell her family about it. So yeah, maybe she's thinking like, I can convince Scott to sell this boat. We can pretend like it never happened. So we don't know. She may have not known about the boat because she didn't tell anybody, but she may have known about the boat. And again, this just goes back to there's a lot of circumstantial evidence in this case. So we don't know for sure if she knew about this boat. So that's, again, not something that can be completely damning evidence. Yeah, and this is a bunch of, like, he said, she said, he said, she said. So then there gets a little bit of drama outside the courtroom. So, as I said, jury was not sequestered. So every day they had to come through and come through security. Well, the same door they're coming through, the family's coming through, witnesses are coming through, everyone's just right next to each other. So one day, um, Justin Faulkner, who is one of the jurors, uh, he was next to Lacey's brother, Brent, and they're walking in and he notices a news camera. So he jokingly says like, hey, like, guess you won't be on the news today, you know, because he's in the shot. And um, so then he's dismissed from the jury. Um, There was some other um, like accusations from another juror that he would be talking about the case when they weren't supposed to and saying his opinions. They told the judge this, and then there's this thing that happened where he says something to Brent, and so they dismiss him. 
Well, Justin Faulkner liked to talk. (laughs) So he goes to the news and he's like, you know what? Like, if I had to vote right now, I'd vote Scott not guilty. Prosecution isn't showing he's guilty. So after this, he got death threats. He was harassed. He was told, I hope you're killed like Lacey and Connor. Um, His car was vandalized. I mean, he got a lot of hate. And as I said, jurors weren't sequestered and they see what happened to this juror who's saying he wasn't, I don't think he's guilty. And you know, that had to lay heavy on their minds that if we find him not guilty, this could be us. Like we're either going to be really bad, the bad guys, or we're going to be heroes. Um, And I think that's really, really important to like, remember is like the jurors knew what was happening in the media outside the courtroom. And yes, they weren't sequestered. There's no way that you can reasonably expect them to not get access to the information that's out there about this trial. So that was like super important. Um, Another little piece of evidence the prosecution had before I get to their like hook, line and sinker. No pun uh, intended. (laughs) What? Oh, no. Shoot. Oh, Lord. Please don't come at me. Okay, so they had scent tracking dogs. And the scent tracking dogs caught her scent at the Berkeley Marina. And the dog reacted to the scent four days after Lacey went missing. Um, and the defense was like, this is completely unreliable. This isn't dogs. The scent tracking isn't 100% reliable. So you can't necessarily trust that as like hard evidence. And also with the scent tracking dogs. So from the court appeal documents that I was looking at, there were actually two scent tracking dogs that were used to try to find Lacey's body. So there was the one that the prosecution talked about that said that the dog caught her scent to the Berkeley Marina. Um, However, that scent tracking dog used a pair of sunglasses to find Lacey's scent, and these sunglasses were known to have also been touched by Scott. So it is possible that the dog that's tracking the scent is actually tracking Scott's scent to the Berkeley Marina, where we know that he was that day supposedly fishing, but we know he was there due to the boat launch ticket. Um, And there was a second dog that was tracking the scent using a pair of slippers that they had no known evidence that Scott had touched those slippers, and that dog lost a track. This, this dog could not find the track anywhere, but of course the prosecution did not report about this dog. They just reported about the dog that did find the track, um, the scent track, to the Berkeley Marina. So just wanted to add that in as well. Yeah, and like, it's not hard evidence. Um, these dogs can do really great mm-hmm. things. They can find people. They do amazing things, but you can't trust it as hard evidence. It is not, you know, you can't listen to it and be like, all right, that means she was here. So prosecution, they have one witness who is their upper hand, and that is Amber Fry. So Amber Fry, she was a massage therapist and a single mother, and she'd been dating Scott. Scott had told her, you know, I I think it was, I have the date, um, December 9th, he said, you know, oh, I lost my wife. It's my first holidays without her. I mean, Lacey is still alive at this point. This is odd, guys. This is not normal. This is very weird. And so he's with Amber um, dating her. And they even, like, pulled up a picture of Lacey um, alone at a Christmas party. And she's sitting there. She's smiling. She's holding her belly. Um, but she's there alone. And at that same time, Scott was at a party with Amber. Um, but I just want to say also, Amber did not know about Lacey. Yeah. Amber did not know Scott was married. She did not know any of this. She was treated absolutely horribly 
in the media. Mm-hmm. Somebody leaked suggestive photos of her. People were saying, well, you're not as pretty as Lacey. You're not as smart. Like, they treated her horribly, but she had nothing to do with this. She is a victim as well. Yes. I mean, not in the same way as Lacey, but she did not know. So please do not attack Amber. <laughs> she is a complete badass because the second she saw Scott, she went and worked with the police. Yes. Which, this is how we get the Amber tapes. Now, they're rough. Yes. (laughs) So, um, reading, I think we're going to read mostly the transcript. It is not as, like, damning as listening to Scott on the phone. Um, You can find those. It's in the docuseries. It's online. Um, But he's so, like, nonchalant. He doesn't tell her about his wife. He says he's traveling, you know, in Europe. Um, the day they're having a vigil for Lacey, he's calling Amber and saying, like, Happy New Year's. I'm near the Eiffel Tower. And then later he's like, I'm in Brussels. And, like, all this when he is in Modesto when Lacey is having a vigil. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, he's being super nonchalant and lying. So then there is what I like to call, like, the confession call. Now, he didn't confess to killing Lacey, but um, he is going to tell Amber what's really going on so i think we're going to just read this um jacqueline is going to be scott i'm going to be amber we're not going to try to dramatize this at all nope, we're just if you want to listen to the actual phone call um if you go to episode five of that docuseries around minute 11 they have the actual call so all right, all right so in this phone call scott says to amber i'm so sorry i'm going to hurt you in this way you haven't been watching the news obviously And Amber's like, no. I've lied to you that I've been traveling. Okay. The girl I, I'm married to, the girl, I'm married to the girl that disappeared just before Christmas. Scott, you told me you lost your wife and this was the first holidays you'd spend without her. That was December 9th you told me this and now all of a sudden your wife is missing? Are you kidding me? There's different kinds of loss, Amber. Then explain your loss. I, I can't to you now. And so that's the phone call. So, um, which is and interesting, very interesting. And after this, he keeps calling Amber. He doesn't stop. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think he knows he's being recorded. I also want to bring up, um, this is where my PI license is coming in handy. <laughs> California is a one party record state. Yeah. So what that means is only one party of the recorded conversation has to consent to the phone call. Be very careful with this because some states are two-party states where both people have to have um like give permission to be recorded one good example is in the monica Lewinsky trial Mm. um there was a bunch of recordings that couldn't be used because i think she was technically in maryland and that is a two-party state where both parties have to give consent before recording can be used california is not this way so don't go try and record everyone and (laughs) pin evidence check check your state's local laws yes if you need to record um a conversation you're having with someone for some reason just do a quick google search and make sure that that's legal where you are yes um but he keeps calling her and you know she tries to get him to confess over the phone Mm -hmm. you know she's like did you have something to do with this did you murder your wife and he never says outright he does Mm -hmm. he never confesses anything like that And so, with Amber Fry, that was the prosecution's, like, that's how they got the leap up. That's how they were like, this is it. So, on November 12th... Oh, go ahead. If I can just say really quick, that has a lot to do with the fact that they're playing to the emotions of this jury, which legally you're not supposed to do. You are only supposed to 
make a guilty decision based on the facts that are presented, but bringing up all of this information about the affair, even though there is nothing actually damning in the conversation, it makes you feel like there is. You feel icky listening to it, and so that's going to taint the decision that you make, even though there are no facts presented. So I just want to kind of add that in to the discussion. Yeah. And she was just supposed to be a character witness to be like, look, Scott's not a good guy. He's cheating on his wife. Um, You know, she wasn't really, the tapes weren't really supposed to open it up Mm -hmm. like this. Um, But yeah, so on November 12th, 2004, the jury deliberates pretty quickly Mm -hmm. um, because Garagos had gone back to L.A., I think it was for back to his office or to do something. And he didn't even have time to make it back for the actual verdict. Um, but the jury does come back. They find Scott guilty of first degree murder for Lacey and second degree for Connor. And so then um, after this, they have to do sentencing. And so the jury not only just found him guilty, but they have to decide, are we going to give this man the death penalty or not? So in that time, um, they do bring a lot of witnesses and family members for Scott and Lacey. Um, So I know Scott's family comes up and testifies that, you know, he should not be put to death. Like we understand the verdict, but please don't give him the death penalty. Um, But I know Lacey's mom did get on the stand and it was very, very compelling. You know, she was crying. She was trying to, you know, ask Scott directly, like, why would you do this? Um, She even kind of spoke as Lacey and Connor, like, why would you do this to me? And I think that really did play heavily on the jury Mm -hmm. because on December 13th, they do recommend death. And on March 16th of 2005, the judge agrees with the jury and sentences him to death. So after the jury and the judge confirm this sentence, the jury did become quite unprofessional. Mm-hmm. Um, there was one woman who had been an alternate who was like promoted up to the official jury deciding. She was on TV. She was calling him a jerk and calling him bad names. Um, there was another part of the trial apparently where they're talking about after Lacey goes missing, Scott had been on like the Dish Network and ordering some porn. Um, and another juror is making a joke about that as well when they're like, what do you, I think an interviewer asked him like, what do you think Scott's thinking now? Or, you know, that. And he just joked and said, does he miss the dish network? So, which is very unprofessional behavior for a man that you literally sentenced to death. That it's, it's very harsh. Um, I, I don't know. I find it very inappropriate. Um, even if you feel that way that's fine, but you should not be going on national media talking like that. Okay. So now, um, so July 5th, 2012, and the appeal was officially filed to the California Supreme Court about his trial. So I'm going to go into a little bit about the trial. Um, again, through the eyes of the appeal, I didn't want to tell you too much of the doubt during the trial because I wanted you to hear what the jury heard and I don't want you to get confused and like, any of that. Mm-hmm. So there is quite a bit of evidence that maybe Scott did not do mm-hmm. it. So starting before Lacey's body was ever found right after she's reported missing. So the police do a press conference and they say, you know, okay, like we've talked to Scott. He was in the Berkeley Marina that day. That's where he was. Now, not to sound like I have a tinfoil hat on, but <laughs> if, if Scott did not do it, if Scott legitimately was just in the Berkeley Marina 
and someone else had taken Lacey, had killed her, they would know exactly where to dump her to frame Scott. I do feel like it was a little misstep by the police. Like, I don't necessarily think you should have said that because that does allow this theory to come in. Um, and speaking of the Berkeley Romina as well, with the boat Scott had, the defense tested it. Um, they bought a boat about the same size as Scott's. And one of the kids that was working in the attorney's office, they had him go out and try to throw over a hundred pound, like weights. Mm -hmm. Um, he did it four times. This kid almost drowned three times trying to do this. Like he could not get the hundred pounds over the boat without it sinking, without it flipping, mm -hmm. without water getting in. It seemed almost impossible. Yeah. The defense was not allowed to present this in trial. They brought it to the judge and the judge said it's not admissible. Mm -hmm. Um, Another thing that was going on around the same time Lacey went missing. So there was that there was a Satanist cult theory. Um, and there is possibly evidence Connor was handled outside Lacey's body. They did find something on his ear and something around his throat. That could just be from when he was in the bay. Mm -hmm. But if it is clear evidence that he had been, I think it's pretty obvious that Scott did not do it. Because, I mean... After the 24th, he was on news media mm -hmm. every second of every day. Like, he could not have done anything after that. No. Um, and so that kind of brings in also um, Diane Jackson. She's a neighbor. She was uh, gone for the holidays. And she said someone broke into her house on the 24th at about 1140 a.m. Mm -hmm. And the police were like, oh, no, no, no. It was the 26th. So this has nothing to do with it. But media was lined up and down. Lacey and Scott Street, mm -hmm. the morning of the 25th, the morning of the 26th. There's no way a robbery could have happened. No. And not been caught on camera. Exactly. There's, it's not possible for a house to get broken into so close to where the media is literally swarming. Like, this place is covered. I mean, you can find all kinds of media reports online, and you can see all along the street. No one's going to break into a house in the middle of all of this. It would have been on camera, yeah. definitely. Um, and so that's kind of another thing is some people do say, like, um, when they saw they saw Lacey walking the dog this morning, I mean, they had witnesses as late as 1045 mm -hmm. saying they saw her walking the dog. Um, the mailman, he comes around 1035 to 1050 in the morning, and he says that he always remember... He knows, like, every dog. If you're a mailman, you know every dog on your route. Yep. I'm <laughs> um, so sorry if my mailman is listening because my dog is that dog that barks at you every single time. I apologize. Yeah, <laughs> Mackenzie was that dog. Yep. She would bark every time. And he says he comes up and the dog does not bark. Mm -hmm. So it does not seem between 1035, 1050 that the dog was there. Um, and it's quite possible Lacey was walking the dog at this time, doing her little loop. Um, they did say, you know, at least every other day she'd go and walk the dog. So if you remember back to what the prosecution said was that Mackenzie was found outside with his leash on by the neighbor at 10:18 a.m. and put into the backyard. Now, when Scott gets home around 4:30, 4:45, he also reports finding the dog in the backyard with the leash on. So it's assumed that the dog has been there this entire time. However, the reports from people who saw her out walking the dog, and also the mailman who reports it not seeming like the dog was home at the time that he came, the dog may have been in and out of the yard multiple times that day. And again, it was reported that it wasn't unusual for Mackenzie to get out of the yard. Obviously, the neighbor just put the dog back in the yard and didn't think anything of it. So that indicates that it's a pretty, 
uh, typical occurrence. So maybe, again, we're not arguing for either side. We're just presenting the facts. But with the witnesses that saw the dog and with the mailman, it is possible that the dog was put back into the yard at 1018. Lacey was in the shower, didn't know her dog escaped, whatever, took the dog out for a walk and returned home later that day where the dog was then found by Scott in the yard at four something that afternoon. So just kind of keep that timeline in mind. Yeah. And um, so the the house, Diane Jackson's house, was being burglarized on the 24th. And that's at around 1140 a.m., which could be around the time Lacey is getting back from this walk. Um, some people are saying that they think if she would have seen people burglarizing this house, like she knows her neighbors, she would have confronted them and been like, you know, what are you doing? Um, which plays into one of like a really, really huge part of the appeal yes. to me, which is the Aponte tape. Um, so Lieutenant Xavier Aponte is listening to jailhouse calls. Because if you're somehow listening to this in jail, all your phone calls are recorded. Mm-hmm. Every single one of them. And so he's listening. Can you listen to podcasts in jail? <laughs> hey, I know people who are in jail and have Facebook. That is true. Okay. That was confiscated so you can phones. you sneak a phone in there. We all watched Orange is the New there. Black. We know. So maybe you're listening to a podcast. If you are, so, just know that your phone calls are recorded. You're welcome. Yeah, I'm just trying to help you out here. Um, but... So they listen in, and especially like in the jail, because people are usually waiting sentencing, waiting trial. So they're trying to listen, like, are you going to confess over the phone, yeah. basically? So there is a conversation between um, Sean Tenbrick, who is the inmate, and his brother Adam. So basically, Stephen Todd and Donald Pierce are the ones who were arrested for this burglary on Lacey Street. Um, and as soon as Stephen. Todd was arrested he said I had nothing to do with that pregnant chick that's the first thing he says that's the first thing he says and the police do not follow up on this at all which I find insane Mm -hmm. because if he's saying that like why would he say that like maybe do a little deep dive yeah and try to figure that out so Sean and Adam are both friends with uh, Stephen Todd and um Stephen Todd did say Lacey caught them stealing and confronted them mm-hmm. um, and that Todd made a threat to Lacey. And Sean, who's the inmate, says, what are we going to do about Lacey? And his brother tells him to shut up because the call's being recorded. Yeah. This is huge. This is really big. Could it be a coincidence? Maybe. But that is big. And that's something the jury should have heard. The key thing here, guys, is that this is reasonable doubt. So you have to prove beyond reasonable doubt that somebody committed a crime in order to be one convicted and two sentenced to death this is a huge piece of evidence that there is reasonable doubt again we are not saying that scott is innocent because we don't know that but there is reasonable doubt there is a lot of reason because you have a man stephen todd who admits to burglarizing a house on lacy street admits lacy came up to him and that he did threaten her And, I mean, most of the time, too, when people who are committing crimes get caught, a lot of times they're like, I don't want to go to jail. It's not unreasonable to think he could have killed her. Mm -hmm. It's really not. Um, Did he? I don't know. I'm not trying to convict him on this podcast. But, you know, it is, it's very fishy. Um, So, with this tape, uh, Xavier Aponte, he sends the tape, and it's conveniently lost. Of course it is. And... The, um, like, appeal lawyers have tried to come forward. And he said, you know, I don't want to testify. I don't want to talk about it. And he has kept his mouth shut. And so, basically, there is no 
recording anymore of the Aponte tape, and it's just kind of done, mm-hmm. basically. Um, and there is one more kind of thing that was happening around the Modesto area, around the time Lacey went missing, that is also something that really shouldn't be ignored. Mm-hmm. So between 1999 and 2002... So that falls, like, right in the time Lacey goes missing. Seven pregnant women disappeared near Modesto. And that's a lot. Seven in yeah. near Modesto. Like, this is huge, guys. So, yeah, so three of them were in Modesto itself, and four were within 80 miles of Modesto, mm-hmm. which is not that far. Now, two women, um, that's Lacey Peterson and a woman named Evelyn Hernandez, they were within six months of each other, and they washed up in the same bay in the same condition. Exact same thing. Only thing found of Evelyn was her torso. What? I mean, that is reasonable doubt. That is the definition of reasonable doubt. Yes. Um, it's just, it is absolutely crazy that none of this was presented to the jury and i mean honestly with all these appeals i would not be surprised if he's going to get either a retrial Mm -hmm. or something um and another thing that i found from the court documents about the appeal um so when you look at the pieces of quote-unquote evidence that the state has presented one of them was that Lacey's hair was found in a pair of pliers in his boat um so these are the this is the only physical evidence that shows that she maybe possibly was in the boat. Okay, first of all, I mean, if you have long hair, it falls out everywhere. You're going to find it everywhere. But also, someone who testified for the prosecution stated that these pliers were so rusty that they likely had not been used in a while. Now, the hairs were found inside the pliers. So clearly, these pliers would have had to have been opened for the hair to be in and then shut. But if these pliers are so rusted that they're not easily able to open and shut... Again, that's reasonable doubt that this possibly did not come from Lacey being in the boat, especially since there's no other physical evidence that she was anywhere in the places that the state has to claim that she was for them to prove their case. Um, So they also, basically the state's theory of the crime is that she was smothered um, because there's no blood in the house. Um, There's no evidence of any kind of stabbing, gunshot wound, anything that indicates a messy death, um, for lack of a better word. there's absolutely nothing. There's nothing. Like, you would find it. Um, So the the state's claim, since nobody can know for sure what happened, is that either the night of the 23rd or the morning of the 24th, Scott smothered Lacey with a pillow and then took her body in his truck to his warehouse, put her in the boat, took the boat to the marina and dumped her body. That's a lot of movement with a body um, to not be seen. And again, like like Jacqueline said, you know, my hair falls out everywhere. Yes. My hair is everywhere. Um, and it is possible that the day of the 23rd, Lacey was in that warehouse. According to the woman who reported that she saw her there. She, she says, I let Lacey use the bathroom. So, I mean, if that's the case, that completely destroys yeah. the prosecution's whole argument mm-hmm. of her not knowing about it her never being there um it's it's a very like muddy case honestly um personally if i was on that jury i don't know how they could have found scott guilty no um there's just no hard evidence and this was definitely you can tell an emotional verdict yes. and not a logical one because one thing i always say too, like about um oj simpson is i'm like if i was on like the oj simpson jury mm-hmm. I understand why they found him not guilty. Yeah. Just from the evidence they were presented. I mean, that glove didn't fit. You know, the evidence they were presented and then Mark Furman, that whole thing. Um, 
I completely understand why they found not guilty because there was reasonable doubt. In this one, I don't know how they found him guilty. I really don't. Because there is a big difference between a gut feeling that someone is guilty, which we all have every day listening to the media and hearing these stories. We're all going to have opinions, but to sit on a jury and listen to the evidence that exists and make a decision, there is a big difference between the two. Um, And just one more thing about the state's timeline and, and the evidence presented at the trial that I just want to include the state had a doctor who testified as to when Lacey and Connor were killed. Um, and, and this got a little bit murky with like how reliable is this? And it's something with like testing the femur of the fetus. I'm not quite sure all the details, but what I do know is that this man testified that Lacey was killed. Lacey and Connor were killed between December 23rd and December 26th. This evidence does not, help or hurt anyone um so like i've said a million times that is not damning evidence no because if scott did not kill her and dump her between 23rd and 24th he couldn't have done it yes he was in the media's eyes every second after that yes there's no way he could have gotten away with dumping her body after that so it's it's like why did the state even present this evidence that the jury is hearing and making a decision off of when that doesn't that doesn't harm him and yeah and maybe they thought like we have an open and closed case we don't have to worry about it and they did kind of um get tossed around but at the end of the day they got a win Mm -hmm. um so do you have anything else about the appeals i was gonna do the most recent update if not i just double checking my notes i do not okay um, don't want to jump around too much. No. So this is a kind of recent update. Mm-hmm. It's not necessarily Scott directly, but I mean, it is. But anyway, so on March 13th, 2019, Governor Gavin Newsom signed an executive order um, basically issuing that all the executions of all 737 death row prisoners in just California is suspended. Um, but this suspension is only valid while he's in office. That does help Scott with his appeal case. Mm-hmm. But um, basically all death row prisoners, their executions are on hold right now while Governor Gavin Newsom is in office. And if I could just add a point, hop on my soapbox for just a minute about just a little minute, just, just a little, little soapbox uh, rant here. Um, 737 death row prisoners just in the state of California. Guys, that is a lot. Um, that is a lot. That is one state of 50. Yes. And so. This information I found from the Innocence Project um, states that 138 inmates have been exonerated while on death row. So these are inmates who had not yet been executed, but they had been sentenced to death and were later found exonerated. So based on these numbers, the Innocence Project estimates that 4% of death row inmates are innocent. So between 1976 and 2020, 1,516 people have been executed in the United States. So if you think that they estimate that 4% of all death row inmates are innocent, that could be about 60 innocent people that were executed. And I don't know about you, but to me, even one innocent person that's been executed is too many. Um, So I just want to... Yeah, that is, you know... For me, the death penalty is so tricky. Um, It's hard because especially in cases where there is like confirmed proof, you know, that the person did it. Kind of like the Golden State Killer. Mm -hmm. Like you're just so mad at this guy and you're like, just let him get the death penalty. But I don't think it's worth it for even the one person Mm -hmm. who is wrongly convicted. Um, I just, 
I don't know. It's hard to justify. Yes. When, you know, there is not that hard evidence. Um, but I do know um, getting rid of the death penalty also has some tricky implications. I know um, a few law officers talk about how they can use the death penalty to bargain with people. Yes. Um, you know, being like, well, if you just go ahead and plea guilty, you know, save everybody some money, don't go to a trial. Like, we're not going to give you the death penalty. So it does get tricky with that, too, if you take it away. You know, but... We'll see. So if I can just hang on to my uh, soapbox for just one more point. Um, I just want to add that a lot of people that are pro-death penalty argue that they don't want their taxes going to house someone in prison for life when they can just be put to death, which I believe is a completely reasonable um, viewpoint. Argument, yeah. However, um, that's not really the case. And studies of the California death penalty system, which is the largest death penalty system in the United States revealed that a death sentence cost at least 18 times more than a sentence of life without parole. Um, So a couple of things that feed into that is all of the appeals, because you are entitled to many appeals. There are a lot of court costs associated with um, someone being on death row. You have increased security for someone who's on death row, not to mention the cost of the execution itself. And all of that adds up to typically our tax dollars go spend a lot more money on putting someone to death versus keeping someone in prison for life. And that's all I'm going to say. And now I'm going to hop off my soapbox. Thank you. (laughs) Yes. So, I mean, obviously there's a lot of, you know, implications with this. There's a lot of reasonable doubt. There's a lot of, I mean, maybe Scott did do it. Maybe he did. Yeah. We are not arguing his innocence, guys. I cannot say 100% whether he is innocent or guilty. I can't. Mm -hmm. But if I'm looking at just the evidence and nothing else there's reasonable doubt and um yeah it's tricky um but as we said we really want to focus on the victims we don't want to just focus on scott um who is kind of a shitty person because he cheated on his wife yeah Um, for sure so we want to just you know remember lacy and remember connor um Mm -hmm. connor you know who was never able to take a breath on this earth or you know meet his grandparents or his mom or his dad and you know Lacey who never got to hold her baby and Mm -hmm. who doesn't get to continue to live um Lacey who wanted so badly to be a mother um I think they tried desperately yeah yes they tried for about a year to get pregnant and she talked about it all the time um there were reports that she was super excited and at parties telling people yes we're trying like like before she was even pregnant she was talking about it and she was so excited and this was something that she so was looking forward to that she never got the chance to have. So we, yeah, she really wanted to be a mother. Yes, we for sure want to remember her. Um, and Sharon Rocha has, um, I think she's done a lot uh, with other victims' families. Um, yes, she does a lot of advocacy work now for um, victims of murdered family members. Yeah, and she actually got a. Um, the Unborn Victims of Violence Act, which is called Lacey and Connors Law, signed by President Bush, um, Mm -hmm. which officially criminalizes harming a fetus when assaulting a pregnant woman. So, you know, she is trying to do the best she can with this tragedy. Um, Mm -hmm. I know she thinks about Lacey and Connor every single day, and you can't ever fill that void of losing someone, especially in such a brutal manner and so fast. Um, But I do think she is trying to use what she's been through uh, Mm -hmm. for good. And she is trying to make the world a little better for these other victims as well. Yeah. So, again, we just really want to 
highlight that although we talked a lot about Scott in this case, um, because we do want to highlight the trial and maybe some inconsistencies in the trial and the evidence, we also want to make sure that we are remembering Lacey Peterson, um, 27 years old, who was just at the beginning of her life, beginning of her motherhood. Yeah. Um, just, you know, she had a long life ahead of her and so did Connor and that was just ripped away from them. And that's just horrible. And, and again, as Courtney said, remembering Connor Peterson, who never got a chance to take his first breath. Um, we just want to make sure that we are remembering them and their families and the tragedy that they went through as well. Yes. Um, it's a very sad case. It's very, yeah. it's a very hard Ooh. case. That was, that was rough. That was a lot. That um, was a lot. Yeah, I know. All right. Do you, uh, is there anything else about this case before we kind of? I don't think so. Um, okay. I'm just going to say, though, definitely, 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 if you want, like, every single aspect of this trial, go watch The Murder of Lacey Peterson. It is six parts. Um, it was really, really hard to pick and choose because mm-hmm. I wanted to just say everything that this docuseries <laughs> said because it was all just so important. Yeah. Um, and they're very unbiased. And yes. so there are, you know, they use the prosecution and the defense and there's Lacey's family and Scott's family. Um you know, they try to keep it very open. They don't try to be like, Scott's 100% innocent. Scott's 100% guilty. They try to just present it as is. There's a lot of the, like, media that was going on that day. They have all those mm-hmm. clips. It was truly incredible. I would recommend watching it if you want even more information than we yep. just provided. Yep. Ton of great information. All right. So, um, I think we have decided we may change this later. We'll see how it goes. We're, we're still in our new little baby podcast um but i think we're gonna call call this segment the perk of the week um so that we (laughs) can talk about something kind of uplifting to end on um because we know these stories are really rough and everyone who does a lot of research into true crime knows that you just kind of want something to kind of think about positive wise you know yeah yes so courtney what would you say is your perk of the week for this week Okay, so um, we're currently recording on a Sunday. So mm-hmm. on Friday night, um, I got to go see Waitress with my mom. Um, it is a Broadway musical. It's based on the movie and the book Waitress. Um, and so, like, all the music and everything is written by Sarah Bareilles. And I've always kind of been obsessed with the soundtrack. And so I finally got to see it. And, oh, my God, it was fucking incredible. It was so good. That's awesome. <laughs> I'm so I jealous. Laughed, I cried. I seriously like I told Kevin like I want to go see it again today like it was so good and it was so fun to like get to see it like with my mom and just kind of hang out with her and it was just so awesome if waitress is coming it's not on Broadway anymore but if like waitress is like touring and coming to your city like don't even doubt if you should buy tickets just do it because it is worth it (laughs) that's awesome I'm very happy to hear that (laughs) yes it was I don't know. It was so awesome. <laughs> and this kind of doesn't tie in with the theme of the perk of the week and happy, but what happened on the way home from Waitrose, Courtney? Oh, I got to call 911 <laughs> because, so I dropped my mom off at our house and then I'm driving home and I'm driving and I'm looking and it's like a Bojangles and in the parking lot, there's like this green Volkswagen bug and like the whole engine is on fire. I mean like flames and I'm like the fuck (laughs) what is happening (laughs) then it gets better because i keep looking and there's a man and he just (laughs) 
He's just raising his foot up and stomping into the car's engine <laughs> trying to and i mean this is like full flames this is like three feet of flames and guys that's not in there. that's not the way you put out a fire i'm sorry <laughs> yeah and so i was like what the hell did i just witness so i called 911 they already knew about it so they were like don't worry you're good um but yeah i don't know what happened but i was like what is this man doing <laughs> so he he was crazy, but it was very interesting. And it was very, I've always like wanted, I called 911 once in the past, but calling 911 is kind of exciting to me because I kind of want to be like the person that like saves somebody. I don't know. Like the hero. I mean, obviously I don't want to see anything tragic, um, no. but it is very exciting, you know, to get to call. Um, I called 911 when we, we went to Denver last summer and we flew home. We were living in North Carolina at the time, and we flew home to Raleigh, but then we still had, like, a two-and-a-half-hour drive home. And so, of course, our flight was delayed, and we landed at, like, 2.30 in the morning. So, you know, between 2.30 and 5, we're um, driving on the interstate, and it's pitch black, and we drive past a car that's just, like, on its side, on the side of the road. Oh, jeez. Yeah, and there's nothing around, so I'm like, oh, fuck. Like, does anybody even know this is a thing? And so I'm, like, calling 911, and I'm like, I'm on I-40, I'm like, this this mile marker, I don't know. And they had not received any calls yet because they had a lot of questions. And I'm like, I don't know, like, I can turn around if you need me to. But, like, I have yeah. no other inf- – it's, it's dark and it was – like, I almost didn't even see it. Yeah. It was, like, a black SUV that was just, like, on its side. Um, so that was super scary, and I hope that those people are okay. So yeah. The one time I called 911, maybe I should have called police, not emergency, but I didn't know it at the time. But basically, um, it was at my parents' house, and they kind of live on a cul-de-sac. And my dad had been outside, and he was like, all right, uh, girls, like, I need you to come out here because nobody is going to believe me. Um, there's horses just walking down the road and they just kind of walked up. And so I called because, you know, I didn't want anyone to hit them. I didn't. Yeah. So, um, it turned out just someone who lives near my parents, their horses just got out. <laughs> but I didn't know what to do. And so I was like, I'll just call 911, <laughs> get them to come get these horses. Um, but, but a good practice, just FYI. If you're listening right now, no matter where you are, I want you to pause and I want you to pull up Google and I want you to get the phone number for your local non-emergency police department and save it in your phone. Because then yes. when these things do happen, again, I mean, it's, it's natural instinct to like, oh shit, let me just call 911. But and calling 911 is better than doing nothing. Yes, for sure. Absolutely. But 911 does also get a lot of unnecessary calls again not out of any kind of intention but people are like oh no i don't know what to do i know this number let me call this number so just take a minute to get the phone number for your local police department and save it in your phone so if you ever come across something that is your first instinct is to call 911 but then you're like okay maybe this isn't like an emergency emergency then you have the number right there because that's also more likely to make you call 911 if you don't know the number off the top of your head and you have to stop and look it up. And again, that's wasting time from whatever the situation is that you need to report on. So just another soapbox I'm going to hop up on today and now I'm going to get off of it. (laughs) All right. So Jacqueline, what is your perk of the week? So my perk of the week this week is going to be the Richmond Public Library System. I love a library. I used to work in a library. It's incredible. Libraries are wonderful. Um, And... I previously lived in a small town in North Carolina, and so we moved up to Richmond a couple of months ago, and guys, they have every book I want. I have not yet looked up a book that was not available in the Richmond Public Library system, um, and that makes me very happy. And 
So last weekend I went downtown to the library and I got some books and then yesterday Andrew and I actually walked to the library because there's one um, on the same road that I live on about a mile from my house so I can actually walk to the library and it just makes me very happy and there are so many books that are out there and they're so easily accessible and just like use your local library guys Li- use your library um to be on my library soapbox um if they don't have a book that you can find most libraries do an interlibrary loan system yes. so what you do is you're like i really want this book and usually i think for our system it had to be older than six months because mm-hmm. sometimes we we're just a little late getting books in um so if it's a book that's very rare um what they'll do is they'll search library systems all across america like i once got a book from an oregon public library wow and they'll yeah they'll let you borrow it for a certain amount of time so that way you can still get your book and that is completely free at least in our library system check with Mm -hmm. your local one if not but yeah libraries are awesome they provide so many resources computers wi-fi books job help computer classes like it is absolutely incredible incredible Um, always just support your local library. Yes. Shout out to libraries and librarians. And, you know, if you check out a book, you can renew it online. You can call on the phone. So there's lots of, because sometimes people are maybe nervous to check something out that like might have a fee attached, but there's lots of ways to renew it. Depending on where you are, you can renew up to like four times as long as nobody else is waiting on it. And you know what? If you're a couple of days late, library fines are what, like 10 cents a day? I mean, yeah, it's... ours, you had a grace day. And then after that for books, it was like 10 cents a day. And then it went up to like 20 cents, but it maxed out at $5. So if, even if you had it for like three months, you wouldn't get charged more than $5. And you know what? If you do get charged $5, that's $5 that goes to support your local library. So it's all good. So just use the libraries, guys. Yes, definitely do. And be nice to your local librarians. Yes. I had too many people come in who were too cranky when we're just yep. trying to provide a free service. Um, most of the issues you're having, we have no control over. Yeah. Um, especially the people like you're face-to-face with. Um, so just be super nice to them and be a good person. And um, I mean, be yeah. nice to everyone, but really librarians especially. Because They're incredible yes all right so i think we're we're good i think think we're we're... good i think this is the end of the lacy episode um if there is some stuff we did leave out some like detailed details um if you think that we left out something super important please Mm -hmm. let us know um i'll bring it up on the next episode um and because his appeal is ongoing um we'll update you guys if more information becomes available so this is definitely a current current events thing so we will bring it back up later in the future if anything comes up um so if you guys want to reach out to us you can email us at caffeinated crimes pod at gmail i'm gonna repeat that because my radiator just clicked and i don't know if it picked up on my <laughs> microphone i didn't hear it but the mics <laughs> are very touchy <laughs> yes so if you want to reach out to us you can email us at caffeinated crimes pod at gmail.com you can also find us on Instagram at Caffeinated Crimes Pod. Um, we would love it if you would rate, review, and subscribe to us on iTunes because that'll yes. help us um, become more visible. Um, again, it's episode two, so if you're listening to us, you probably know us. Just go ahead and text us. But also leave us a review because that would be really nice. That would be super helpful. Um, and yeah, and just for the Gmail and the Instagram, it is crimes, plural, with yes. an S, just to be sure. Um Make sure you find the right one. Yep. 
All right, so I think we're finished. So, Courtney? So, everybody, um, go have a cup of coffee. And don't commit a crime. Yeah, don't be on this podcast. So, have a good day. Yep. All right. Bye. Bye.